Only the victim is alive and the murderers are not. It's a pity you didn't know when you started your game of murder that I was playing too. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? First simply disappears, the other two died. It's your host and criminal researcher, Ashley Lana, welcoming everyone to another intriguing case about history and events that have occurred in this world that we live in. If you are new to the show, hello, hello, and what an intriguing case to start with. It involves the dangerous peaks of the tallest heights on Earth. As a climber myself, it is a place I love to be, although I have not been to this location. <laughs> it's still scary regardless. So that being said, welcome to Lullaby. Last episode, I went into the curious case of Jennifer Pan and the home invasion that left the Pan family in shambles. We listened to the interrogation and the interview tapes of the case and dissected the timeline, making for a fascinating learning experience. As you can probably tell, I am very enthusiastic to do this week's case because I'm a mountain climber, Viva La Canada, hey. So you may or may not have heard me refer to myself as feeling like a rejuvenated mountain goat in the past. If you've heard me say that and gone, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's because after you've climbed or summited a mountain, you feel unstoppable. You just feel at that moment, that's the hardest thing you could have ever experienced, and you're alive. And by the time you get back down, there's nothing that can bother you because you're alive. And that's very important. So I feel rejuvenated. I feel like a rejuvenated mountain goat. Because <laughs> climbing is a passion. And those who climb, it is addicting. And reaching summits, it doesn't only challenge the body, but it challenges the mind. If there's anything a mountain can teach you is that anything can change in a matter of seconds, as you will learn in tonight's case. Something interesting among the climbing community is we talk about mountains as if they are living entities. And the mountain's goal is to kill you. <laughs> well, not every mountain, but... For example, the 14 peaks. These are 14 peaks in the world that surpass 8,000 meters. And K2 is a climber's bane. This mountain is the most dangerous in the world. And the true story I'm about to tell you is absolutely terrifying. And I think about it every single time I'm summiting a peak. A mere second can create chaos. The sources for this episode include witness statements from the survivors, the Sherpas, the climbers, and the 2008 K2 disaster by C.J. Lager, the Basecamp Magazine K2 article, as well as the book The Summit, How Triumph Turned into Tragedy on K2's Deadliest Days, first-hand account by Sherpa Pemba Gilje, who is a mountaineering legend, and you will love him by the end of this. He is the goat. He is the rejuvenated mountain goat. And Pat Felvey also helped write the book. And the 2012 documentary titled The Summit, which I highly recommend you watch if you want 
like footage. It's amazing. The 2008 K2 disaster, it involved numerous individuals and it's crucial to acknowledge each person's role in the story. While it is challenging to summarize this complex event without emitting important details, it's important to note that approximately 25 people were scattered across this mountain during the incident. So I've done my best to simplify these overlapping timelines, okay? Fear cult, we can do this. We can do this, we got this. So get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of injuries and death. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Ralph had told me that he would go first, making sure I'd take care of his wife, Cecile. We had to rely on each other, trust each other with our lives. This meant that Rolf had to pass around me on the fixed ropes to take the lead. With only the light of our three headlamps against the ice of Serax, we slowly shuffled along the mountain in the dead of night. And that's when we heard it. body disappears into the chaos, lost to the mountain forever, the light from his headlamp gone, my heart shattered as I heard the thunderous rolling of snow and ice crumble between us, Rolf being taken away by the unforgiving mountain. The grief threatened to consume me, but I had to stay strong for my survival, for Cecile's survival. I told Rolf that I would look after her. Where is he? Lars, where is Rolf? Where is Cecile, he? Cecile, we... We have to keep going. We have to get down. He was just here. Where is he? Where is he? The snow. Where is he? Where is Rolf? He's gone. Sorry. He was we, just here. He's gone. We have to keep moving. Okay, Look at okay. me, Cecile. We have to keep moving. Okay. More ice could fall. We have to keep moving. Yeah. We'll make it, Cecile. Alright. We'll honor Rolf's memory and make it down to base camp. Okay. We'll make it home. Let's go. As we descended the black slopes of K2, every step was a painful reminder of the loss we had suffered, but we couldn't let despair stop us from the safety of reaching camp. We had to keep going. For Ralph, for ourselves. But we did not expect just how much loss we would face that night. And this was only the beginning. Lars? This is the true story of the 2008 K2 disaster.
K2, also known as Mount Goodwin Austin, or Shigori, is the second highest mountain in the world after Mount Everest. It stands at an elevation of 8,611 meters, or 28,251 feet. The beautiful peaks are located on the Pakistan-China border in the Karakoram mountain range. The local Balti people consider K2 sacred, adding to its cultural importance in the region. The name K2 comes from the practice of naming the peaks of the Karakoram range, with the K representing Karakoram and the two indicating that it was the second largest peak surveyed in the region. K2 has gained the reputation as the world's most challenging and dangerous mountains to climb. It has steep and technical terrain, along with unpredictable weather and conditions reaching over negative 50 degrees Celsius or negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit, accompanied by 200 kilometer per hour winds. The high fatality rates have dubbed K2 the Savage Mountain. The first ever successful ascent of K2 occurred on July 31, 1954, by an Italian expedition led by Ardito Desio. It was that moment that gained significant achievement in mountaineering history. However, K2 has maintained its reputation for difficulty and danger since then. Since 1954, only 306 climbers have successfully reached the summit of K2 and safely descended, in comparison to Mount Everest, where a total of 6,338 climbers have reached its icy peak. Mount Everest has stretches of flat sections, whereas K2 is strictly almost vertical. K2's difficulty is attributed to its steepness, its icy slopes, and frequent avalanches. Climbing K2 comes with a high fatality rate, and it's estimated to be around 25%. In comparison, Mount Everest's fatality rate is approximately 4%. This stark difference highlights the increased risks and dangers associated with climbing K2. The icy steep slopes and the challenging climbing routes require exceptional mountaineering skills and experience. The popular routes on K2 are the Abruzzi Spur, the Southeast Ridge, and the Season Route. Both involve exposed ridges, ice falls, and sections of unstable rock all difficulties climbers must face to reach the summit. K2's weather conditions are also a significant threat. Climbers must be able to navigate sudden weather changes on K2, which can quickly turn a manageable situation into a life-threatening one. While Mount Everest also experiences challenging weather, it generally has more stable conditions during the climbing season. K2 can be divided into several sections, each with its own distance, danger level, and estimated time to reach. Here's a breakdown of these sections. The first section is base camp, the starting point for climbers. K2's base camp is located at an elevation of approximately 5,150 meters, or 16,900 feet. Base camp serves as a staging area for preparation. The distance from the trailhead to base camp is approximately 62 kilometers, or 39 miles, and it typically takes about five to seven days to reach, depending on the route and the individual climber's pace. Section two is Camp One. It's situated at an elevation of approximately 5,700 meters or 18,700 feet. Camp One marks the first significant stop on the ascent. The distance from base camp to Camp One is roughly eight kilometers, five miles. It is also at Camp One where the danger level increases due to the steep and icy slopes, as well as the potential for avalanches. Section three is Camp Two, located at an elevation of 6,200 meters or 20,341 feet. Camp two is a crucial acclimatization point. The distance from camp one to camp two is approximately six kilometers or 3.7 miles. And the climbers usually spend one to two days to reach this camp. Section four is camp three, positioned at an elevation of 7,100 meters or 23,294 feet. Camp three is a challenging and exposed campsite 
the distance from Camp 2 to Camp 3 is roughly 2 kilometers, or 1.2 miles. And climbers typically spend one to two days to reach this point as well. The danger level increases significantly due to the steep and icy slopes, as well as the high winds and extreme cold with no cover. And Section 5, Camp 4 to the Summit. Camp 4 is also known as the Death Zone. It is located at an elevation of approximately 7,900 meters, 25,919 feet. From Camp 3 to Camp 4, the distance is around a kilometer, or 0.6 miles. Climbers usually take a few hours to reach this camp. The danger level reaches its peak in the death zone. Due to the extreme altitude, the low oxygen levels, and unpredictable weather, the technical challenges on the final push to the summit are astronomical. The time spent in the death zone is critical, and climbers aim to reach the summit and descend as quickly as possible to minimize the risks associated with prolonged exposure. Between Camp 4 and the summit lies the bottleneck of the mountain. The gradient levels of the bottleneck area of K2 can vary, presenting climbers with steep and icy challenges. The precise measurements of these gradients are subjective and depend on the chosen path and the prevailing conditions during the climb. However, it's estimated that the incline grades of the bottleneck average between 50 and 60 degrees, and even in some sections, much steeper. With steeper inclines beyond 60 degrees, climbers must employ advanced mountaineering techniques, such as front-pointing crampons and utilizing ice axe to secure their footing and maintain balance. The steepness of the incline amplifies the physical exertion required. Climbers need to possess exceptional strength, endurance, and technical skills to reach the 8,611-meter, or 28,251-foot, summit. K2 is described as a mountain on top of another mountain. In order to attempt K2, it, you have to have a solid decade of mountaineering experience, minimum, and have successfully reached a summit of at least one of the other towering 8,000 meter peaks. In best case scenario, you join a team of expert mountaineers, so you're not alone. There are those brave people who will solo climb K2. I, hats off to you because the danger level alone on climbing by yourself is just, oh, it's so freaky, it's so dangerous. Michael Myers has nothing on K2. <laughs> so the oxygen levels in the atmosphere, they decrease the higher you climb. And so the more difficult it becomes for your body to circulate oxygen through your bloodstream, your muscles will get tired because that is what is going to aid you. For people who do not climb, I'm gonna to try to describe this to you. Imagine you are two hours in to walking up a flight of multiple stairs and oh, let's throw in some icy steps, some icy footing, carrying a 25 pound backpack, because that's usually how much the climber backpacks weigh. And then you're wearing a Michelin man snowsuit that has you sucked in there like a can of tuna. So your range of motion is next to nothing. And you have wind smacking you in the face while you're breathing through a straw on a Monday, because everything's harder on a Monday. Mountaineers train for altitude in advance, and that's why it takes anywhere from six to eight weeks to climb K2. So I'm gonna teach you a fancy term that you can throw around at the Thanksgiving dinner table, using the term siege tactics to climb mountains. So mountaineers will trek partway up, they'll set up camp, and then they'll retreat to sleep at the lower camp, and then the next day they'll hike up further, set up camp a little higher, then retreat again. So what this does is this helps the body adjust to the lower oxygen levels that will be faced at higher altitudes. It also allows them to move more gear like 
tents and heavier ropes up the mountain in advance before the summit. Siege tactics do take a long time, sometimes up to four weeks, and climbers may wait actually because they have to wait for weather to clear up before making the final push to the summit. And in this story, siege tactics are definitely used. I know I'm throwing a lot of words at you, but it's important to understand the concept before just throwing you into a story and not not understanding what they have to go through and how they're already tired at the point where I start. With high altitudes, a lot of climbers will bring supplemental oxygen. There are those badass alpinists who use no oxygen support and they can climb to the summit and back in less than a week. That percentage is very low, but those people exist and deserve a huge pat on the back. <laughs> Climbers can get what is called altitude sickness, and it's also known as acute mountain sickness, so AMS. It is a condition that can occur when climbers ascend to high altitudes too quickly without giving their bodies enough time to acclimate, and it's caused by the reduction of oxygen levels and decreased air pressure at higher elevations. So symptoms will include headaches, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, sickness and shortness of breath and these symptoms typically manifest within 12 to 24 hours after reaching a high altitude and it progressively gets worse and when you start to feel altitude sickness the disorientation starts to come in and you got to get your booty back down to camp because you have a very limited time and it varies from person to person before madness sets in up becomes down left becomes right you have no clue where you actually are on the mountain you can actually start to confuse people you might not know who they are and then the longer you stay up there you might get hypothermia You'll start removing your clothes because your body will start to fake itself out and you feel like you're getting hot and then you freeze to death. It's a very dangerous hobby, but I assure you the, the photographs are breathtaking. <laughs> it's a very, it's an accomplishment of the ultimate push you could put your body through. And that's why people love doing it. You are going someplace that a very low percentage of the people in the world will ever go. Now, in severe cases of altitude sickness, this can progress to high altitude pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema. And this involves the accumulation of fluids in the lungs and it leads to breathing difficulties, coughing, congestion, and it can involve swelling in the brain, which is where I was explaining before, you get the confusion, the disorientation, the loss of coordination, and you can even fall into a coma. So to prevent altitude sickness, it is crucial to ascend gradually, and it allows the body time to adjust to the changing altitudes. Is everybody on the same page? Is everybody in the same book? Are we on the same book? If we could do the same book, the same chapter, possibly the same paragraph, and dare I say the same sentence, I'll be very happy. <laughs> so now we are going to move into the 2008 K2 disaster. It is complicated and it is controversial. So to better comprehend these events, it's helpful to know the names of the people most focused on in the story. And I'm also going to briefly go over the eight teams. Remember, climbing, it's not a race, it's not a competition, it's just standard labeling for countries and or groups who are summiting at the same time. So Team Canada, woo! Team Ireland, woo! Stuff like that. For respect, of everyone who was on K2 during this disaster, I'm going to name all of the eight teams and the people on the teams. Now, don't get hung up on all these individual names because the main contenders, so to speak, who will pop out primarily in the story, I will focus more on, all right? There are so many people in the story, 
I'm trying to keep this as simple as possible without making people feel less important. It's just a lot of names. We're going to start with the first team to make it to the K2 base camp, the Dutch Norit team. So the leader is Wilco van Roelgen. He is a 40-year-old climber from the Netherlands, and his first attempt was to conquer K2 in 1995. However, his journey took an unexpected turn because a sudden rock avalanche crushed his arm. And then in 2006, Wilco decided to give it another shot, and this time he was accompanied by fellow Norit team climber Jur McDonald. This time, when Wilco was climbing with Jur, Jur narrowly escaped death when he was injured under a rockfall and had to be airlifted to a hospital from base camp. Now, ironically, it was the same spot that Wilco van Roelgen had actually gotten into an avalanche in 1995. Gerard, aka Jur McDonald, he was renowned for his expertise in climbing and his unwavering positivity. He always prioritized the well-being of others above his own, and it made him an important member of the Dutch Norit team. Another member was a man named Cas van de Gevel. So he was a Dutch climber with years of experience who had also joined the Norit team. Then we have Pemba Gilje Sherpa, and he was the final member of the Norit team. He was a 34-year-old climber from eastern Nepal, and he grew up near Mount Everest, and he developed this deep connection with the mountains. And he pursued this passion for climbing, and he became a qualified climber and mountain guide. So Pemba's achievements, this would include scaling Everest multiple times, like, oh, breakfast, I'm going to do Everest. And then he would conquer K2 without supplementary oxygen. The, the man was a legend. The man is a legend. He's not dead. Spoiler alert, he's not dead. So people who didn't know Pemba would mistake him for just a regular equipment carrying Sherpa, but Pemba was an experienced and fearless mountain climber. It's June 2008, and as time progressed, climbers from various teams started to arrive at base camp. The second team to arrive was the French team, with 61-year-old Hughes Obered and high-altitude porter Yihan Bog from Pakistan. French team were followed by the South Korean team of Kiang Hoi Park, Hoya Gyeong Kim, Dong Jin Huang, two Sherpas, Yumik and Pasang Boti, they were cousins, and the team leader, Mr. Kim. The American international team was comprised of Eric Meyer along with a Swedish mountaineer, Frederick Strong. And in 2006, Frederick was the first Swede to have climbed the official seven summits, the seven highest mountains on each of the seven continents in seven months earning him the Adventurer of the Year in 2007. That's awesome. The Serbian team came in, a man named Predrag Zagorak, as well as his friend Iso Planik, and they were accompanied by a Pakistani high-altitude porter named Dren Mandik. And then we had two solo climbers, 46-year-old Alberto Zaran from Spain and Marco Confrontola from Italy. And finally, we have the Norwegian team, led by a young man named Lars Nessa, who was accompanied by a 33-year-old Rolf Bay and his wife, 34-year-old Cecil Skog, who was the first woman to stand at both the North and South Poles and successfully stand on the tallest peaks in the world. And Rolf and Cecil, these two were accomplished mountaineers and they were absolutely so perfect together. They had met in 2003 on Mount Elbrus in Russia. And then in 2005, they decided to try K2 to get to know the mountain. Rolf and Cecil were on K2 for 93 days, but they never made it past Camp 3. And then in 2007, they got married. So it's now 2008, and they're deciding that they're going to go and try and summit K2 together. So here we are, 
all the teams who are attempting to conquer K2 have reached base camp in late June 2008. Wilco and Pemba from the Nora team, they very quickly realize that many of the other teams planning to summit K2 are not well equipped, especially for the unpredictable weather and terrain. And Wilco, who is very known for being very blunt, <laughs> fear call, we, we love him, he made it pretty clear that he thought some people were very stupid for attempting the most dangerous mountain in the world. Some of them didn't even bring ropes. Wilco and his Norit team, they had plans to be the first group to summit with the first good weather window, hopefully in late July, because most of the deaths on K2 happened in August. Wilco knew that if he could get his team up the mountain before all the other teams decided to go, then they shouldn't have an issue with congestion up the narrow, dangerous bottleneck. Now, K2 does what K2 likes to do, it rhymes for a reason. Mother Nature gave the good old razzle-dazzle and it sent an unbelievable snowstorm starting on July 13th, 2008. It closed the climbing window for everyone and caused tensions to increase at base camp. Now, Wilco and Pemba's worst case scenario was unfolding. Every team now wants to summit during the next predicted five day weather window at the end of July to early August. And what this is called is summit fever. This sudden urge of enthusiasm, it just, it brought worries about traffic jams on the mountain ropes. And the Norit team, Wilco, Pemba, Jure McDonald, and Cass, they had been waiting on K2 for a good two months at this point. Jure, he even used a satellite phone to call his wife back home and he debated coming home, but he didn't want to miss the opportunity of a lifetime when it came. So everyone's tired, everyone's anxious to get started, but they cannot climb K2 if everyone is not on the same page because they're all going at the same time. So they had to set up a meeting with all of the teams at base camp to devise a plan for everyone to ascend K2 during the same window and safely. And Wilco, slightly annoyed, along with Pemba, had to keep positive. Pemba, the good weather is finally here. I'm ready to take on this mountain. I cannot help but feel as though the mountain does not want us here. Now that we can climb, everyone wants to use this five-day window of good conditions. Everybody wants to use this window. We're going to have to get the other teams together and figure out how we're going to work together. Yes. With so many teams attempting to summit at the same time, it's going to be chaotic up there. On July 23, 2008, the climbing teams met to discuss the division of workloads to set up the fixed rope lines and repair old ones up the mountain. If everyone worked together, there was an 80% chance that each person would reach the summit. On the south side routes of K2, there are approximately 2,500 meters of fixed rope that needed to be set up by the new trail breaking party. The party included eight of the strongest climbers from each team to work together. They were to leave camp four, two hours before the other climbers, to everyone, the plan appeared straightforward. Yet the Norwegian team, consisting of Lars Nessa, Rolf Bay, and Cecil Skog, couldn't shake their heads of the unease. It seemed too easy. On July 28th, the teams all left base camp, excited for their climb to camps two and three, and then the last stop at camp four before the push for the K2 summit. This is what everyone was waiting for. 
every team had achieved the milestone of reaching Camp 3, situated at the daunting altitude of approximately 7,100 meters, or 23,294 feet. With just 24 hours remaining before the official summit attempt, everything was proceeding according to plan. But that night, a violent windstorm swept through the camp, unleashing its fury upon the mountaineers. Pemba thought it was a sign. The relentless gusts were so powerful that they mercilessly snatched away numerous belongings, sending them tumbling off the dark mountainside. The hurricane wind speeds forced the climbers to seek refuge in their tents, huddled together for warmth and protection. Wilco recalled in the documentary The Summit that they were sure that the winds would die down eventually, but they got much worse. During the windstorm, a Serbian climber's tent was blown up from its ice screws and shredded into the darkness. He had lost all his climbing gear and supplies, and he was forced to seek shelter with Pemba and Jur. Sleep eluded everyone that night as they tossed and turned in the relentless slumber. When morning finally arrived, Wilco had reached for his satellite phone, eager to contact the Norit team's base camp back in the Netherlands. Wilco needed to confirm the weather forecast for the mountain, relying on his team back home, who used the most advanced and accurate weather monitoring program on the planet. With relief, he received assurance that the conditions were perfect for climbing, this confirmation marked the green light for their final ascent to the summit. The trailbreaking party had assigned the high-altitude porters the task of fixing the ropes to Camp 4, with their designated leader in charge. However, when their leader fell ill, there was no one to supervise the porters. It was the responsibility of the Korean team to double-check the fixed ropes for proper installation from Camp 4 during the final push to the summit. Unfortunately, according to Wilco Van Rulgen, they failed to do so. On July 31st at 10 p.m., Pemba Gilje woke up to join the trailbreaking party. Their task was to lay and repair ropes ahead of the other teams, ensuring a smooth climb to the top and a safe descent. Pemba had expected everyone to be ready when he left his tent. However, to his disappointment, the leader of the South Korean team was not even awake yet. Everyone was still sleeping. Pemba took charge and urgently woke everyone up, banging on their tents. As a result, the trailbreaking party started their journey 75 minutes behind schedule. During the previous meeting, it was never discussed the proper time to head back if it was getting too late. Reaching the summit too late would mean descending in the dark, substantially increasing the risk of accidents. The longer the climbers took, the faster their oxygen supplies and resources depleted, with rescue teams unable to navigate K2 in darkness or in favorable weather conditions. Wilco, Pemba, Cass, and Jure understood their Norit team had to reach the summit by 2 p.m. without a minute to spare to avoid descending in darkness. Finally, after two hours, the trailbreaking party was ready to begin their ascent, carrying their equipment. While approaching the bottleneck, Pemba had seen 46-year-old Alberto Saran descending. Alberto had been an independent climber who wanted to reach the summit without any other teams, but he had to turn back when he realized it was too dark to summit alone. Alberto kindly offered aid to the trailbreaking party up to the death zone. Pemba, being an experienced climber, was not using supplemental oxygen and would go down in history as being able to survive the K2 death zone for over 90 hours without oxygen, a legendary achievement, although it was not part of the plan. As mentioned earlier, the death zone is located at the elevation of approximately 7,900 meters or 25,919 feet to the summit at 8,611 meters, 28,251 feet. This danger level reaches its peak in the death zone due to the extreme altitude, low oxygen levels, the unpredictable weather, and the technical challenges of the final push to the summit. The time spent in the death zone is critical, and climbers aim to reach the summit and descend as quickly as possible. 
to minimize the risks associated with prolonged exposure. By 1 a.m. on August 1st, 2008, the trailbreaking party was making its way through the dark and deep snow. Hemba and Alberto Zoran led the group, and they approached the incline of the bottleneck. Both turned to check on their party, and to their surprise, the high-altitude porters and other Sherpas had already began securing the ropes and placing the screws into the mountain. This was very unexpected, as no one had discussed starting this process yet, especially since they hadn't even reached the bottleneck. Pemba tried to communicate with one of the porters, expressing that they were wasting ropes by placing them so low on the mountain. There wasn't even an incline. However, due to a language barrier, the porter ignored Pemba's concerns and continued. Frustrated, Pemba attempted to use hand gestures, but no one in the group understood. Pemba and Alberto exchanged concerned glances, but had no choice but to continue. As the sun began to rise, the trailbreaking party reached the mouth of the mountain at the bottleneck and began securing the ropes for the climbers to ascend safely. Alberto then offered Pemba his extra length of rope, expressing that he was comfortable climbing on his own. Pemba politely declined, explaining that the high altitude porters below him had more rope, and with that, Alberto bravely pushed forward on his own, scaling the mountain. It became clear to Pemba that having an increased amount of rope was crucial at this stage. With a sense of urgency, he turned to the porters and requested more rope. A quiet voice at the back of the group had expressed that they were out of rope. They had used it all in the lower mountain. Frustrated and disappointed, Pemba expressed the urgency of the situation. He insisted that they send down team members to the lower mountain to retrieve the already laid ropes and bring them up to their current position. Pemba emphasized the importance of placing these ropes along the traverse leading to the summit, which is the most crucial section of the mountain. Pemba knew that this setback would make it impossible for anyone to reach the summit and safely descend back to Camp 4 before darkness fell. In the early morning of August 1st, 2008, the sun barely peeking over the horizon, 25 climbers at Camp 4 awoke ready to challenge the summit of K2. Frederick Strong of the international team recalled the remarkable day with a positive mindset, stating, quote, There are perfect conditions. We're talking a day in a million. There wasn't a day like this that I can remember because it was warm. It didn't take very long for the mountaineers that emerged from their tents to change their anticipation to disappointment. They discovered that the trailbreaking party had made minimal headway in installing the critical ropes needed to conquer the summit. Pushing forward, the team decided to head off from camp eager to make progress, but their journey would come to a halt as they reached the bottleneck, where they were forced to wait for the high-altitude porters to rectify their problem. These porters had to descend the slopes to retrieve their ropes that they had previously fixed too low to the mountain. The 25 climbers anxiously awaited the porters, hoping that their efforts would soon pave the way for a successful ascent. Wilco, along with other climbers, felt a sudden surge of frustration and confusion. How could such a critical mistake occur when the team of experienced porters had already discussed the plans? They had placed their trust in these seasoned professionals, relying on their expertise to ensure a smooth and efficient ascent for everyone. Multiple climbers, including Frederick Strang and Eric Meyer of the American International Team, had decided to turn back to Camp 4, knowing that the two-hour delay would mean a dangerous descent that they were not willing to risk. It was 8 a.m. and there was a traffic jam underneath the steep incline of a 50 to 60 degree exposed area, underneath a serac of ice that stretched over 300 meters above them. The serac is known as the motivator, as no one wants to be underneath it. It can crack at any time and cause an avalanche killing everyone. It is a very unstable piece of ice that is shelved on the top of the mountain. A climber named Dren Mandic from the Serbian team was feeling exhausted 
He was tired of waiting, so he decided to descend. In order to do so, he had to pass by Cecil Skog from the Norwegian team. He had to unclip his rope and go around her. Dren had lost his footing, and he slid down more than 300 feet on the slow steep of the bottleneck. This caused Cecil to slip as well, but fortunately for her, her ropes prevented her from falling any further. All the climbers watched in shock as Dren finally came to a halt on the ice. When Dren stood up after the fall, the climbers assumed that he was uninjured as he waved to everyone. But then he fell again, and he began sliding faster down the mountain, revealing that he had sustained multiple physical injuries. The climbers at the bottleneck radioed the American team back at Camp 4 for assistance. There was a discussion among the climbers about whether some of them should descend to try and help Dren Mandic. Wilco van Rulgen, a member of the Nora team, expressed his belief that there were enough teams positioned below who could potentially provide aid. The Serbian team decided to descend to save their teammate, while Wilco believed that they should continue to push for their summit, relying on the assistance of others. According to Pembe Gilje Sherpa, the discussion about Dren Mandic's situation lasted only a few minutes before climbers resumed their ascent. As the teams began separating at their own pace to go up the mountain, Rolf Bay from the Norwegian team began suffering altitude sickness. He felt unable to continue the ascent and decided to wait for his wife and Lars Nessa on the way down. He encouraged his wife and Lars to continue their climb to the summit. He gave a thumbs up to his wife and told her that he was extremely proud of her and she should plant the flag of their country on the top of K2. With that, Cecil and Lars Nessa continued to climb to the summit, leaving Rolf Bay waiting until they descended and could go back to Camp 4 together. It was Frederick Strong from the American team who made the brave decision to climb from Camp 4 to aid the rescue of Dren Mandic. Upon his arrival, he found that Predeg Zagorak and Iso Planik, the two Serbian climbers, had already descended from the bottleneck to rescue their teammate. To their dismay, they discovered that Dren had tragically passed away. In the subsequent interview in the documentary The Summit, climber Frederick Strong revealed that if he had known that Dren was already dead, he would not have risked his own life to try to bring him back down. If I knew that Dren was dead, I would not have gone up. The Serbians wanted to take Dren's body back down to base camp. I said that's impossible. It's far too dangerous. What we can do at least is bring him down to Camp 4 and give him a proper burial there. Honestly though, should not have tried to lower a full-grown man down the death zone from 8,150 meters to 7,800. That is sheer ice. Every step is a burden. Include a dead body? It's a hell of a load to lower with each step. It is an unwritten rule in mountaineering that attempting to move an immobile climber can result in the rescuer's own death. The unwritten rule in mountaineering advises against moving an immobile or deceased climber due to the potential risks and dangers involved. It recognizes the limited resources and unpredictable nature of high altitude environments where attempting to transport someone can endanger the rescuer's life. Climbers must prioritize their own safety and make responsible decisions in such situations. Mount Everest and K2, two of the world's highest and most challenging mountains, have unfortunately claimed the lives of many climbers. The exact number of dead bodies on these two mountains is difficult to determine, as they may have been removed or lost over time. However, it is estimated that there are over 200 dead bodies on Mount Everest alone, while K2 is estimated to have around 80. The ever-shifting ice on K2 has been known to almost regurgitate bodies up from the cracks when shifting, and then taking them back down later, giving K2 the nickname, the Killer Mountain. When Frederick Strong, a member of the American team, was aiding the two Serbian climbers in lowering their teammate, Dren Mandic, 
a brave high-altitude porter from Pakistan also joined the effort, named Yan Bag. Carrying the body down the mountain, Frederick was tired and out of breath, and he began to speak urgently at the importance of safety. Slowly, slowly. We need to take this step by step. <coughs> Be careful. Watch your footing. If you do fall, you must release your rope. Otherwise, you will pull us all down the mountain. Our lives are at stake here. The four of us are positioned with the body of Dredmandic being lowered in front of us. One of the Serbian climbers walks a few feet parallel to me. Behind me is Jihan Beji. Beside him is the other Serbian. I start to notice Jihan acting strange, his steps becoming lazy and unsteady. Yihan suddenly stumbles and slips down my right side, gripping the rope that connects us. The rope wraps around my leg, we all being pulled down the steep slope. Panic sets in as we scream at Yihan to release the rope, but it seems there is a language barrier, for he cannot hear us. Finally, Yihan lets go. Without attempting to stop himself, he plummets down the mountain like a rocket, disappearing over the ice bank. The mountain swallows him whole. After this terrible incident, we decide it is too dangerous to continue lowering Dren's body. We say a prayer and respectfully leave him to rest on the mountain. Meanwhile, several climbers, including the Norwegian team, were on their way to the summit. Regarding people questioning how anyone could continue, after seeing someone die, Cecil Skog of the Norwegian team said, quote, If you drive a car and you see people crash, you see people die in traffic and you keep on driving because you think that it's not going to happen to you. With the Dutch Nora team going ahead, Pemba had stopped and spoke to his partner, Jer McDonald. He felt that they should turn back and that the other climbers were mad for going up. He believed that death was a sign. Jer McDonald beamed with happiness and optimism, telling Pemba that this was the opportunity that was not going to happen again in this season, so they should carry on with many of the other climbers who were going ahead. Pemba, being an expert Sherpa for the Nora team, remained loyal to his teammates. He could not abandon them now. They relied too heavily on him for his guidance on K2. Solo climber Alberto Zaran from Spain had reached the summit first at 3 p.m. on August 1st, 2008. While on the descent, he met Lars Nessa and Cecil of the Norwegian team. He told them that they were roughly two hours from the summit, maybe four depending on their strength. It was already midday, and Alberto knew that it was getting late, and he wanted to tell them to turn back before it gets dark. At 5.30 p.m., Lars Nessa had successfully reached the summit of K2, and 30 minutes later, at 6 p.m., he was joined by his teammate, Cecil Skog. The Norwegian team stood proud, holding their country's flag into the sky. Lars even put on Rolf's fluffy white Easter bunny hat and danced for the camera. They knew that they couldn't stay long as the sun was beginning to set, and they knew that a portion of their descent would be in the cold dark. Just after Cecil had touched the summit, the South Korean team followed behind her, cheering with joy, planting their flag as well. Cecil excitedly approached the only female climber on the Korean team, 
Her name was Gomi Sum. She was famous in her home country of Korea, being a seven-time champion of the Asian Games. Cecil Skog and Gomi Sum were the ninth and 10th women to have ever reached the summit of K2. Soon, both teams began their descent in the setting sun, knowing that they would be climbing in the dark. At 6.30 p.m., Pemba Gilje had reached the glorious peak, followed by his teammates Cass, Vilko, and Jur. Jur had become the first Irishman to summit K2, and soon behind him was the solo Italian climber Marco Confrontola, who had reached the summit at 7.30 p.m. Before everyone started to descend back to the ropes, Jur had generously given his camera and satellite phone to Pemba to carry. This will be a key piece of evidence in the future retelling of the story. Meanwhile, further down the mountain, the Norwegian team had finally caught up with Ralph Bay, who had made the decision to stay behind. The trio then began their journey downwards, aiming for the safety of the fixed ropes. However, their progress was slowed as the darkness engulfed K2, transforming the once majestic snow-covered mountain into a fog-covered impenetrable abyss, only illuminated by the narrow beam of the climber's headlamps. The fixed ropes, a vital lifeline for descending climbers, played a crucial role in guiding their path these ropes were strategically positioned along the designated trail, serving as both a safety net and a visual guide. On the fateful evening of August 1st, 2008, at 8.30 p.m., disaster struck, when a massive serac broke free from the glacier near the summit of K2. Hurtling down the darkness of the bottleneck section of the climbing route, in an instant, a group of 17 climbers found themselves trapped in the treacherous death zone of K2. As the Norwegian team made their way beneath the towering Serac, the massive ice formation came crashing down, engulfing Rolf Bay in darkness. As Cecil and Lars looked around, they could no longer see Rolf's headlamp, and the silence filled the air. Cecil, Rolf's wife, was left shattered by the sudden loss of her husband. Just moments before the incident, Rolf had entrusted Lars with the responsibility of ensuring Cecil's safety as Rolf decided to go in front of them to lead the way. But the situation was only about to get worse. Lars and Cecil soon discovered that the ice avalanche had severed the fixed ropes, leaving their path obliterated. They were now faced with the daunting task of descending blindly down K2. Without the guidance and security of the ropes, they realized that any climbers above them were also left without a lifeline as they reached this point. Everyone was stuck in the death zone that night, and their lives were running against the clock they had to get down to Camp 4. This is every climber's worst nightmare. It's pitch black. You have nothing but the beam of your headlamp, which gives you tunnel vision. There's heavy fog. You can't see below you. It's sheer drop. You're in the death zone. Hurricane blizzards start at night. Your oxygen supplementation is dwindling and your energy is pretty much gone because most of the deaths happen on the descent because you're tired, you get lazy, and people fall. Like every time I'm descending a mountain, I think of the K2 disaster. Like there's other disasters, but the K2 one specifically I think of. And it's my mind, just the intrusive thoughts win and it's awful, I hate it. But the sound of an avalanche, you guys, is very distinctive. The rumbling that builds the sound isn't like, oh, there's an avalanche to my left. The sound completely submerses you. And it's the vibration that's underneath your body. It's as if you're in the dead center of this avalanche and it hasn't even hit you yet. It's scary as hell. And to hear that at night, oh, I don't like that. That's so scary. <laughs>
So on this mountain, when the Serac cracks, it's loud and it echoes. So everyone on this mountain would hear it, followed by the thunderous avalanches. And then the fixed ropes, these were the maps, these fixed ropes, they played a vital role in guiding these climbers safely to their camp four. Minutes after the massive Serac breaks free, the Nora team and the solo Italian climber Marco Confrontola, they're descending together and they arrive at the bottleneck and they realize that they can't find the ropes. So the Nora team and Marco Confrontola, they met up with the South Korean team at the bottleneck and they decided to attach everyone to a fixed rope together and attempt to descend. Now this is tough and this is sketchy because everyone is tired and they're going at their own pace. Many of the Koreans just start sitting down and then that stops everyone and they kept getting up and then they would fall back down and it's frustrating for everybody because they understand that they're tired but they have to keep going. Wilco and Marco, they detach, Pemba detaches, and they start trying to find the fixed rope around them. They didn't know the Serac broke, they heard it, but they didn't see where it was or what happened. So they think that they're lost and that they're on the wrong side of the mountain. They're wondering if they're heading down the side of K2 that goes into China, not the correct side that goes down into Pakistan. That, if you go down the, like, the wrong side, no one's coming for you. That's so scary. <laughs> like, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm going down the wrong trail path. No, you are going down the wrong side of a mountain that's going to take you into another country and no one's gonna look for you. Again, down at camp four, Frederick Strong and the other climbers who stayed behind, they're monitoring their radios. They can look up into the darkness and they can only see tiny little ant headlamps in the distance and they can tell that the group of climbers are not moving fast and eventually they stop moving completely and so frederick strong and the other climbers they're worried they know something is wrong but they can't get a hold of them on the radios and this is where the story really branches off because it's multiple points of views different stories same timeline bear with me fear cult we can do this Everyone in the Korean team and the Nora team, they've started to space out descending the mountain because the Nora team and Marco were having a hell of a time trying to get the Korean team to even go down with them. As the Nora team starts descending, they're really looking around for these ropes. They're tired, they can't find them, and they go, we can't find them in the dark. We have to bunk out here until the sun comes up to find these ropes. They decided to bivy into the snow, creating a little makeshift block from the wind. And what this does is basically kind of hides them from the freezing temperatures of minus 40 degrees at an altitude of 27,000 feet. They're on Karakoram 2. That's right, K2, I used your government name. So Wilco, Jure, and Marco, they chose to risk exposure to frostbite, hypothermia, and altitude sickness by bivying through the night. If you fall asleep, you risk dying in your sleep. But Wilco, Jure, and Marco, they were experienced and they weren't worried. They just wanted to wait for the sun to come up to find the ropes. Then they would continue on, assuming no avalanche was going to hit them throughout the night. The other Nort team member, Cass, he is actually kind of above the bottleneck. He did get separated from everyone at one point, but at this point in time, he is safe. He is good. Now, Pemba had decided to leave Wilco, Marco, and Jure at their bivy site. Pemba said, I have to go back down 
because without the aid of oxygen or ropes, he didn't want to risk his life. And everyone agreed and Pemba and two Sherpas went back down. And by 1 a.m., Pemba safely reached Camp 4, confident that his teammates would follow by daybreak. So eight climbers had remained unaccounted for, lost on the mountain at this time. It wouldn't be discovered until later that around this time, a Pakistani climber by the name of Karim Maraban, he was killed on the mountain. It's unknown how, it's unknown when, or where he died. He just never made it back down. And his death would mark the fourth death that night. Back up alone on the mountain, Dutch Nort team member Cass had been separated from the group. He was descending from the bottleneck and passed by French team climber, 61-year-old Hugh Diobray. Hugh had told him that he was all right and that Cass should keep going. They both had discovered the severed rope where Cecil and Lars Nessa had been, where Rolf had died. So Cass, using only his ice pick and crampons, began to alpine style descending the mountain. Not very long after, he heard a rumble. The colossal serac above him had cracked, crashing down the mountain. That's when Cass had witnessed the French climber get struck and fall to his death. The headlamp fading into the darkness, marking the fifth death. Marco Jure and Wilco had heard the rumble of the avalanche as they were below the bottleneck. Marco had claimed that he had seen the headlamp of Hugh fall past him as they were bivied in the snow. At the crack of dawn on August 2nd, 2008, at precisely 7.45 a.m., Pemba Gilje found himself back at camp after a sleepless night. Determined to establish contact with the stranded climbers on the mountain, he continued operating the radio, hoping for a breakthrough that never came. Clusters of climbers stationed at Camp 4 caught glimpses of sporadic groups of their fellow climbers at their vantage point. The Norwegian team of Lars Nessa and Cecil Skog were in shock to wake up to discover that the other climbers had died on the mountain. Cecil had to make a call to her father-in-law to tell him that his son Rolf had died. She was terrified that the man would be furious for her for not taking care of his son, but instead he told Cecil, you have to get off the mountain. You have to make it home. The first rays of sunlight pierced through the icy landscape and Wilco von Rugen slowly emerged from his slumber. The blinding brightness reflected off the pristine snow, reminding him of the perilous night that he had just endured with his friends. Wilco, along with his companions, Marco and Jure, began their mission to locate the missing ropes. They never found them. Wilco started growing a sense of unease, but it wasn't the absence of the ropes that caused his panic, but rather the onset of snow blindness. Snow blindness is a condition caused by prolonged exposure to the intense glare of the snow. It was beginning to affect Wilco. He knew that if he didn't act fast, his deteriorating vision would be his death. Helicopters did not fly at those altitudes and climbers cannot manually remove a full-grown body without risking their own lives. He was on his own. With a sense of urgency, he informed Jure and Marco that he had to descend immediately, urging them to be safe. With that, Wilco began to descend alone. Wilco was cautiously descending the slopes of K2 with his crampons and ice pick. Then a flash of bright red caught his eye. He turned his gaze to the left, only to be met with a horrifying sight. The unmoving bodies of three members of the South Korean team laid sprawled out in the snow, connected by a single rope. The snow surrounding them was red with blood. One of the men was covered in frostbite and missing a boot. One was hanging upside down by the rope, and the other was laying and groaning in the snow, but they were all still alive. The events of the previous night remained a mystery to Wilco, as the overwhelming circumstances prevented him from inquiring about their situation. Shock coursed through his veins, as one of the men weakly gasped for breath. 
his hands drenched in blood. Desperate for warmth, he pleaded for gloves, extending his bloodied hands to Wilco. Without hesitation, Wilco handed over a spare pair of warm gloves, offering a small glimmer of comfort to the Korean team member. However, Wilco knew that his own survival was at stake. Wilco told the man that he was going snowblind and had to continue. The Korean climber weakly assured Wilco that he knew help was on the way, so he should carry on. Back at Camp 4, climbers were monitoring the unmoving climbers. Wilco was seen interacting with the Korean team members and passing by them. Pemba had been taking photos consistently of the hanging three climbers with his camera that Zhur had given him on the summit. Sometime throughout the night, the Korean team did split up, and some members made it back to Camp 4. However, three of them were still stuck on the mountain. Those who made it back to camp began planning a rescue mission to save their three-stranded teammates. Climber Frederick Strong had turned to the South Korean team and said, quote, Hey guys, they're not standing up. No one is moving a meter. And you're telling me that I should go up there when there is ice still falling down. There is no fixed lines. There is no ropes. That is insane. Pemba emphasized the importance of considering their current strength levels and implementing safety measures. Despite their ambition, they had just conquered a dangerous mountain and needed to prioritize their well-being. These climbers were still at Camp 4. They were not yet back at base camp. They still needed their strength to descend back. At this time, many of the climbers at Camp 4 had actually started heading back down to base camp. Regardless of Pemba and Frederick's warnings, the Korean team leader, Mr. Kim, sent two Nepali Sherpas to find and rescue the three missing Korean team members at 12 p.m. The Korean leader, Mr. Kim, was the person paying the Sherpas. Thus, they felt that they had to do as they were told. Up on the mountain, Wilco's strained vision made it difficult for him to concentrate. Blinking heavily, he surveyed his surroundings. As he looked up, he spotted Marco Confrontola and Jure McDonald, along with the three stranded South Korean members, positioned high above him. Jure McDonald, known for his selflessness and admiration for the courageous Sherpas, wasted no time in attending to the three stranded Korean climbers. Jure carefully repositioned the climber who was hanging upside down, ensuring the safety and comfort. He found the boot for the man who was missing his, and he refrained from cutting the ropes that connected the climbers, fearing that these ropes were crucial for anchoring them to the mountain. In a reassuring tone, Jure assured each of the men that help was on the way and that people were aware of their presence. He wanted to alleviate their worries and provide them with a sense of hope and comfort amidst their dire situation. Marco was tending one of the stranded Koreans when he claimed that he heard the sound of Zhur climbing upwards toward the Serac. He said that he was confused and he wondered why Zhur would be heading in that direction. Marco stated that he called out for Zhur, but there was no response and it became apparent that Zhur was disorientated, likely due to altitude sickness. Realizing the urgency of the situation, Marco quickly scanned his surroundings and spotted a nearby radio. He managed to catch a frequency and urgently relayed a message to the radio responder at Camp 4. In a hurried voice, Marco informed the camp that there were three Koreans in need of assistance and emphasized that he was heading back down to seek help. Time was of the essence, and Marco knew that prompt action was critical to ensure the safety and rescue of the stranded climbers. Marco began descending, leaving the stranded climbers behind. As he looked up, he couldn't see Jure anymore, and then suddenly, the mountain rumbled and snow tumbled around them. The sound of the Serac breaking for the third time echoed throughout the air. Marco pressed himself against the mountain for safety, and after the avalanche stopped, he saw a body fall nearby. It was the body of Jure McDonald, and he didn't survive the fall. 
marking the sixth death on K2. It was 2 p.m. back at Camp 4 when Pemba received a radio call from one of the two Korean rescue Sherpas on the mountain. The Sherpa had informed Pemba that Marco Confrontola, the Italian climber, had been found alive below the bottleneck and was in need of oxygen. Pemba knew the exact location where Marco was and immediately sought assistance from the group gathered around him. Pemba asked if anyone would accompany him. The only person who volunteered was the Norit teammate Cass, who made it down the previous night. Without wasting any time, Pemba and Cass were off. However, as they continued their ascent, Cass's strength began to wane, and he became too weak to continue. Pemba immediately told Cass to return back to camp for his own safety, and Pemba went on alone. It was midday when Pemba finally reached Marco, who was disorientated and showing signs of early hypothermia. Pemba tried to place an oxygen mask on Marco, but Marco resisted, questioning who Pemba was. Pemba knew that Marco was suffering madness, but still had to get him back down the mountain. Just as Pemba was trying to comfort Marco, his radio crackled to life. The two Korean Sherpas had made a significant discovery. They had located the other climbers and tragically found the body of Jure McDonald, who had fallen during the avalanche. Pemba's heart sank at the news. Then suddenly, the deafening rumble of another ice and rock avalanche echoed above the mountain. Pemba instinctively covered Marco, shielding him from the onslaught of large ice chunks. The force of the avalanche was overwhelming, but Pemba was steadfast to protect Marco and ensure their safety. Once the snow fell, Pemba looked up to see five bodies tangled in ropes above him and Marco. The bodies were of Jure McDonald, the two Nepali rescue Sherpas, and the three stranded Korean team members, marking 11 deaths that day on K2. Pemba said a prayer and then packed up Marco Confrontola and was able to successfully bring him back down to Camp 4. Marco Confrontola had spent 36 hours in the death zone. And that evening, Pemba had journeyed back to Camp 4 and then down to Camp 3. It was a slow journey as he had hoped that he would meet other survivors along the way. The Nort team leader, Wilco von Rulgen, was continuing his descent as he felt his anxiety build. He was almost completely snowblind and had to sit down. It was now 5 a.m. on August 3rd, 2008. He had survived two full nights on K2. The thoughts of his wife and his son back home filled his mind, and he missed them dearly. Wilco began to settle in the snow on a ledge, not sure of what to do, but he knew he had to keep going. The night before, Pemba and other climbers had left Camp 4 and went to Camp 3. And 18 hours after the rescue of Marco Confrontola, the campers at Camp 3 were watching the south face of the mountain when they seen a disorientated climber stumbling past Camp 4. It was Wilco, and above him was Cass. Using the climbers back at Camp 3, they radioed directions to both Cass and Pemba, who eventually found Wilco and led him back to safety at Camp 3. Wilco was rescued, and he had spent 60 hours in the death zone. Soon, the survivors had safely made it down to K2's base camp days later, with no more deaths. The 2008 K2 disaster had taken the total of 11 climbers, and the media had begun spreading the news worldwide. And a lot of it initially wasn't even accurate facts. So families were hearing this and going, oh my god, is my family okay? And it wasn't until everyone was pretty much back at their home airports where the news slowly started to come out. Many climbers recounted what happened, but it was Italian climber Marco Confrontola who quickly became a controversial 
person who retold his version of the events. He held a news conference at Milan Airport when he arrived home in Italy. Marco claimed to the media that Wilco had not bivvied the night with him and Jure on the mountain. Wilco would soon come to dispute this claim by stating that he had left the summit with all of them and bivvied the night with them. It wasn't until the morning of August 2nd when they woke up and Wilco was going snow blind that he's like, I gotta go by myself, ciao. Marco would change his story the more he told it. He initially claimed that it was him and not Zhur who stayed on the mountain to help the Koreans and that Zhur immediately started to abandon the climbers and wander off. Marco told the cameras that he spent close to four hours trying to save the Koreans. Time goes on, everybody thinks this is the story, and then the family of Zhur McDonald decides to ask Pemba because no one had asked him what happened that night. Zhur McDonald's girlfriend, Annie Starkey, beautiful woman, if she can hear this, I love you, she expressed her belief that Marco's accounts of the events, they kept changing because there was no surviving witnesses to dispute his claims. So with everyone involved in the incident having tragically lost their lives, Marco had the freedom to shape the narrative as he wished. It was Pemba and Cass who came forward to discuss the events with Zhur McDonald's family and with photographic evidence that proved it was Jure McDonald who stayed behind and helped the stranded climbers, not Marco Confrontola. The photos, they indicated that the two Sherpas had been freed from their ropes before they tragically lost their lives. So based on the photographs, it appears that the two Sherpas' bodies had landed in their final location after the snowfall because they had been freed from the ropes and were likely descending at the time of their deaths due to being freed by Zhur. Pemba explained that when he later encountered Marco and saved his life, Marco was exhibiting signs of apoxia, the condition that was caused by lack of oxygen at high altitudes. Marco had madness and was upset and he was cursing at Pemba because he was completely disorientated. This wasn't his fault. And he was trying to provide him with oxygen, Pemba was. It remains uncertain whether the three Koreans were released from their ropes specifically. However, it is clear from Pemba's photographs from Camp 4 that Jur McDonald had freed the two stranded Nepalese Sherpas before his own demise being carried down the slope with the men he was trying to save. Marco, at a later point, he made donations to the family of the Sherpas and claimed that he had tried to help. And he probably did try to help. He just had to hustle back down to the mountain. It's hard to put yourself in any of these people's situations. It wasn't you. That's where the controversy comes in, right? It is a great thing that Marco did give donations to the Sherpa's families because that's, that's still important too. Pemba, Gilje Sherpa, his photographs were instrumental in revealing the critical aspects of the story that would have otherwise remained unknown. Jure McDonald's heroic actions, it led to his untimely death while saving others, and his girlfriend later emphasized that Jure lived the life dedicated to helping people, and his selfless sacrifice on the mountain was just a testament to his true character. He died the way he lived, helping people. Oh, that's so beautiful. After the tragic events of K2, Wilco Van Rulgen, he achieved a remarkable feat on K2. He became the only mountaineer to have spent two nights without shelter on K2 and survive. Unfortunately, both Wilco and Marco suffered severe frostbite, which resulted in the loss of all of their toes. Wilco actually just received prosthetic toes, so it slips onto the top of his foot, and he's still climbing. 
the man is like there he's a machine he is not stopping for anybody and it's so inspirational now pemba gilje sherpa this man is also a legend he is known as the silent hero of the 2008 k2 disaster he had spent an incredible 90 hours in the death zone. That's a record. 90 hours in the death zone without oxygen, without supplemental oxygen. And 70 of those hours were dedicated to coordinating the rescue efforts of the lost climbers. And his efforts did not go unnoticed. Obviously, six months later, Pemba was honored by the National Geographic as Adventurer of the Year. So well-deserved. Norwegian climber Cecil Skog she achieved a groundbreaking milestone in 2010. She became the first woman to successfully cross Antarctica unassisted and unsupported. Frederick Strong, he was undeterred by the previous challenges and he made attempts to conquer K2 10 years later. And he attempted his second attempt in 2017, which was followed up by another expedition in 2019. But K2 was doing what K2 does, and he wasn't able to reach the summit because of the conditions. All of these people who survived, including Cass, they're all still climbing. They're inspirational speakers. Like, obviously, like, I would sit and watch these people talk for hours. Tell me more. Tell me more. They're so inspirational to go through such a tragedy and to come out and be able to speak about it. It's just, it's incredible. Of the 18 climbers who ascended, only 11 survived. So although the bodies of the fallen climbers, they could not be recovered, their memory will continue on forever. And as I'm telling you this story, you guys will learn this story and you can tell people about the K2 event and how all these people risked their lives to save other people. Humanity is not dead. It reminds us that life is so important and being optimistic and positive, helping others is truly what life is about. So everyone can be successful together. That's the story. Jer McDonald in particular, he's remembered as, quote, the guardian of the mountain. And this title was bestowed upon him with great affection. And he holds the distinction of being the first Irishman to successfully reach the summit of K2. His legacy will forever live on in the mountaineering community. Everyone loves you. Pemba Gilje Sherpa, who continues to climb to this day, went on to recall the tragedy of the K2 disaster by saying, quote, if everyone had turned back after the Serbian climber fell down, I think there would have been only one death on the mountain instead of 11. That was the true story of the 2008 K2 disaster. The story is insane because it wasn't as if 11 climbers all died at the same time by the same avalanche. They died over the course of several avalanches in a very small window. The K2 2008 disaster, it reveals various aspects of human character, especially in the face of extreme circumstances. It highlights acts of selflessness and kindness, as well as instances of conflicting accounts and potential miscommunications. And everyone tried to come together to save people. The dramatizations for this episode, oh my God. Well, first of all, we have Captain Cook, who played two characters. He played Pemba Sherpa and he played Lars Nessa. Then we have Brett from Dissect That Film who played Frederick Strong. And then we have Eric, one half of the Team TNA podcast who played Vilko Van Rusen. 
I love that name. It took every ounce of me not to pronounce it that way the entire time because it just, it sounds so suave, so sexy. <laughs> I like the name, I love fancy names. You all did so well. You truly added to the episode, bringing everything to life. And of course, I'm gonna drop an F-bomb. Thank you so fucking much for being so fucking awesome. F-bombs, dropping F-bombs, left, right, and center. <sighs> see, see how happy you guys make me? I get, like, there, none of you guys are even here, but I can feel the love and I love that in our community in our fear call community we are safe we are supportive we are positive and I love you so much and thank you so much for supporting the show there'll be more many more they're coming for me now and then they'll come for you Back on our never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie, we are delving into the Mountain Range film 2017, The Ritual. The summary is, reuniting after the tragic death of their friend, four college pals set out to hike through the Scandinavian wilderness, and a wrong turn leads them into a mysterious forest of Norse legends, where an ancient evil exists and stalks them at every turn. The creature from this movie has been circulating online and people were curious as to what film it was from, and the answer is The Ritual. I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. You can send me your horror movie recommendations to Lullaby the Fear Podcast at Instagram, and my team will send them to me. So be safe, spread kindness, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Sweet dreams. Lights out. Lights <laughs> out.